Every Wednesday morning at 8.30, I go to work cleaning rat cages with the animal facility manager, Diana. Diana is a quiet, unassuming woman, and each week we spend two to three hours together cleaning cages, in total silence. Part of this silence is my sincere loathing for mornings, but most of it is because I just don't know what to say. I realized I've known Diana for almost four years, and despite seeing her close to daily in the hallways and weekly amongst the rat cages, I still don't know a thing about her. This is What's the Deal with Diana, an audio story about the unknown past of Diana Philbrick, the animal facility manager at the Department of Human Health and Nutritional Sciences at the University of Guelph. I'm your host, Mackenzie Charter. For our interview, I reserved a conference room. When Diana enters, she takes off the long, white lab coat that she always wears, revealing her ordinary clothes. It's as if I'm seeing a completely new person. I become acutely aware of how little I know her. So what do you want to know about? Starting from the beginning, where did you grow up? I grew up in Vermont, at a little town that is poised between the Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Vermont border, right on the Connecticut River. Okay. A little a town that is obscured by a 4,000-foot mountain, which kind of rises above it. As the interview begins, it immediately becomes apparent that Diana has an extraordinary memory and a staggering attention for detail. This is her describing Brattleboro, Vermont, the town she grew up in. And the town was is interesting. It was in the Seven Years' War, which was raged between France and Great Britain in North America. The town was actually founded as a fort to protect the English colonists from the French coming in from Canada. So basically this was one of I think four forts that was posed along the Connecticut River. And this is, we're talking now about 1732 to yeah. about 1750. And um, it was uh, on a flat land on the Connecticut River. Um, it never was attacked by the Indians or the French, by the way. Or here, she's describing Sackville, New Brunswick, a city where she lived during the 1960s. Sackville was an interesting community. It's on the Bay of Fundy. It's on the Tantramar Marshes. These marshes are salt marshes which have been drained by Dutch farmers coming to Canada after the Second World War. They saw okay. that this land was very fertile and if you got the salt water out you could, you could have some very good farms. So they drained them and they, there were a lot of old farms sitting on these marshes. Diana is profoundly humble. Even in trying to interview her, I had to clarify that the interview would be about her, not anyone or anything else happening in the department. Despite her discomfort with being the center of attention, Diana was very kind and candid, and she even shared some of her sense of humor with me in stories like this one. One of the geology professors was a paleontologist. He was very interested in the fossils at Joggins, Nova Scotia. If you've ever been to Joggins, you know that it's a rock face, and 
and as the, the world's highest tides occur in the Bay of Fundy, and as the tides go out, this rock face is kind of peeled from time to time. And so you get these incredible fossils that, uh, exposed. And this Scotsman had a fossil track. It was, it was a footprint of some fossils. He had made a plaster cast, and he brought it back. He was very pleased with himself, brought it back, and decided to put it on the wall of the building that we shared. The trouble was it was enormously heavy. And the first plastic cast that he put up actually brought down the wall. <laughs> so we were all sitting there one day with broken cinder blocks. <laughs> when we discuss more serious matters, Diana consistently says that her life is dictated by trying to make a living. Or as she puts it, The story of my life is I am looking for a job. <laughs> okay. I'm looking for something that pays. And through some perspectives, this is true. As a single woman in the 1950s and 60s, it was necessary that Diana have a stable income and career. However, I would argue that Diana's life has also been equally guided by a deep passion for science and nutrition, as well as great human compassion. She first encountered scientific research in Indianapolis, Indiana. She was completing an internship in dietetics at the University of Indiana Medical Center. They did have a metabolic unit, and that metabolic unit was concentrated on studying osteoporosis at the time. So they were measuring uh, calcium intakes and calcium excretions in patients, and it was very nicely set up. Um, everybody's diet was carefully measured. All the intake was measured, anything they left over was measured. Right. And then, of course, all the calcium that came out in the urine, the feces, were also measured. The problem was, first of all, the doctors running this, this metabolic study were really careful about the type of patients that they brought in. We often think of osteoporosis as being a disease that damages, shall we say, middle-aged white women who lose bone due to the menopause. But um, they had everybody in there. They had men, they had women, they had children. And oh, in wow. many cases, they had people who couldn't speak English very well. So they really didn't understand the right. importance of, of following all the directions. They would flush the toilet before you would get to, to the sample, sure. or else they wouldn't eat half their meal. They'd take it back to their room and hide it under the bed or something. Oh. It's kind of... <laughs> oh, wow. So, um, and so basically, it was kind of a bruising experience because I really thought that this was the sort of thing I really would like to do. This was science, but it was kind of chaotic science. While Diana was beginning to discover her passion for science, she was also starting to learn about some of the drawbacks of working in medicine.
probably the most rewarding aspect of that whole experience was working in the children's hospital. We had a lot of patients from Kentucky and dealing with these people who first of all really didn't understand what diabetes was and how it affected their children was really quite a very kind of interesting experience. For example, we had one woman who came in, she had had a little girl. The child was diagnosed with diabetes when it was six months old. And this woman had had the child out of wedlock, so she was doing it all by herself and she was totally illiterate. So trying to explain to this woman uh, exactly how to follow food exchanges, how to keep the child on the diet, and also how to provide the child with insulin was quite, quite an experience. We had to actually sit down with this woman. She wasn't stupid. She was just underprivileged. We had to train her to memorize seven days worth of diets. So on breakfast, she had to remember exactly what to give that child every breakfast. And then luncheon, we couldn't tell her how to exchange food at all. If it was porridge, it was this kind of porridge. If it was, or if it was juice, it was this kind of juice. And to top everything else all off, of course, she was also very poor. Mm -hmm. So basically, the little girl was doing very well, as a matter of fact, and she would have the whole diet in her head. The pity of the whole thing was that the child was growing, and so the dietary requirements, of course, also changed a bit, and so it took a lot of time to kind of reprogram her. Working with her was it was almost a dream job because she was so, she was so alone with this little girl mm -hmm. who was the apple of her eye. She was a dream job because she was responsive to the nutritional advice being given to her. Most of the patients that Diana encountered were angry and frustrated that their child had diabetes. They didn't want to listen to medical input. But this woman was cooperative and she was extremely well-intentioned. I can remember one day, though, uh, she came in after the child had started school. She had, she had actually had the, the, the chutzpah, what you call, to, to put the child on a bus which, and get her to go to a school. And the, the um, doctor asked the little girl how school was, and the child was kind of noncommittal. She, she started to cry, as a matter of fact. It seemed that at that school, 10 o'clock in the morning was when the, the children received milk and cookies for a breakfast break. Um, sure. And of course, because she was diabetic, the teacher at that school was petrified of, of giving her any food at all. So she sent the kid home. Oh. So the doctor said, how long has this been going on? And the little girl said, you know, I haven't gone to school at all. This was January when all this occurred. Oh. And at that point in the game, I was really amazed because the doctor turned around and said to that mother, you should have done something about this. This was something totally beyond what that woman could do. Sure, she, yeah. was, she was already operating at the far end of her, her tether as it was. And he said, you don't want this little girl to grow up stupid like you. I mean, that just absolutely, it seemed, I think he silenced the room. People were just absolutely so amazed that he would be so brutal 
yeah. to a woman who was trying so hard, you know. Sure. She was so unusual because so many of the other people that you dealt with were first of all very resentful that their child had diabetes and they didn't want to listen to you, they didn't want you to, to kind of um, intercede and put, they thought it was a natural progression, you know, sort of thing. And here was this one human being who was working her brains out, right, to yeah. keep this kid going. So that was, I kind of didn't like that. I didn't like the kind of, the fact that um, in some cases medicine is cruel. After this eye-opening experience, Diana focused her energy on what she found most interesting, the science behind it all. She completed her master's at Purdue University in microbiology. It was at Purdue that she fell in with a group of French Canadians who suggested that she move to Canada. She got a job at Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick teaching nutrition. So I had two nutrition courses and then I thought it would probably be interesting to start food science. At Mount Allison, Diana immediately began to rise above her role of just instructing. She created a food science program to help young women. Again, thinking of what these girls could do after they graduate from university, I thought that some of them would like to do something besides become well-educated housewives. I thought maybe food science would also be something of interest, simply because it's nice to know how foods are made while people look at them. There are manufactured foods out there that we will counsel people to eat. We should know exactly what constitutes them and how they're made and what food additives actually do in that food, how they improve taste, how they improve mouthfeel, you know, this sort of thing. I created two nutrition courses and this food science thing. So that was my life. And I also kind of was interested in starting a little research program on my own. I didn't get very far with that, but I did get an NSERC grant one year. NSERC stands for the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council the Government of Canada's Natural Science Funding Agency. Oh wow, what was the research program about? I, I was interested in vitamin D sulfate. The vitamin D scene was just getting started and, and I knew that the sulfated form of the vitamin was also present and, and how it was metabolized. I was interested in that. Consolidation at Mount Allison, which is basically like a restructuring of the university due to cutbacks in funding, brought Diana to Guelph, where she completed a PhD with Dr. Doug Hill. She took on a research project with international implications, 
for several countries across Africa, as well as the European agricultural market. So basically what we were interested in, the University of Guelph had a huge research grant formulated between Canada and several African countries, um, Nigeria being one, and then several Asian countries, Malaysia and Indonesia particularly. These were countries that were interested. They, they farm a lot of cassava, which as you know is a non-kill plant, a very drought-resistant plant that is a basic uh, source of carbohydrate for many people living in this country. Um, but these countries were interested, they produced so much of it, they were interested in actually getting cassava to be used as a feedstuff for animal feeding in Europe, so the European common market. And one of the things about the plant is that it's, it's covered by a very kind of very thick bark. And the bark is actually, you peel the bark, it's like a potato, you, you, but the bark on cassava is much thicker than that of potato. In various uh, poor countries of the world, what they then do after they've hacked this bark off, they have to soak the, the meaty part of the cassava in water for several days in the sun. And the reason for that is that the bark contains cyanide. So my job was to, the portion of cassava that contains the cyanide is called linamarin. And so we got some pure linamarin and I fed it to animals and then tried to kind of calibrate how you could, how much uh, sulfur-containing amino acids you actually required to prevent any sort of, of cyanide toxicity occurring. So basically we found that the biomass was not really an adequate substitute for the carbohydrates that you would get from an ordinary wheat base or um, a kind of other kind of base thing. This was very disappointing of course for these Indonesian and Malaysian uh, exporters who really had counted on being able to get rid of their cassava on, onto the European common market. It just doesn't work. She left Guelph to teach nutrition again, this time at the University of Western Ontario, where she continued to develop her research interests and skills. I was interested in seeing uh, exactly how kidneys handle high salt intakes, because as you know in Canada, everywhere in North America we consume crazy amounts of salt mm -hmm. as opposed to what we really need, which is 0.5 grams per day. <laughs> yeah. We're up there around 3, 4, 5 grams, mm -hmm. and in some cases in this world we're up around 27 grams. So basically, um, how, does a, how does an embarrassed kidney handle this? Was that another insert grant? Or yes, was it was another insert oh, grant. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, similar to Mount Allison, consolidation brought Diana back to Guelph to work with Dr. Bruce Holub. She describes this as her most rewarding work. If I were to talk about it, I would say this is probably the most fruitful uh, of, of all my, my ins and outs. So basically polycystic kidney disease it affects about 1 in 10,000 individuals and it affects children as well as adults. Its major thrust is in the young adult person 
who goes through life carrying the gene and doesn't realize it until they're 40 or 50 when the clinical symptoms become manifest and they realize that they have passed the gene on to their progeny. So the disease itself causes enlarged kidneys and in these will lead to really, first of all, as the kidneys become filled with these huge cysts, um, the kidneys themselves expand and they cause back pain, intense back pain. The cysts can rupture from time to time and become infected. And basically when the person succumbs to, it's a slow progressive disease which eventually winds up in renal failure. But we were really interested in it. Bruce had managed to find out that there was a mouse model of polycystic kidney disease. It was started by a gentleman named Takahashi in Japan. So Bruce said, okay, go get the kidney, go get the mice. I took my mother, who was then in her 90s, crazy lady, then um, we went to Japan. <laughs> we went to Toyoke. Uh, Japan actually in Nagoya, which is in the southern part of the main island of Japan, near where Toyotas are made, by the way. And we went to Fujita Health University, where this mouse model was perfected by this Dr. Takahashi. So, I uh, not only brought back the mice, but I brought back two technicians that would help me breed this animal because they are very, very delicate. We were looking at a number of dietary things that perhaps could slow down the disease. We found out, first of all, food restriction will work. We also found out that if you feed soy protein, it will work. Polycystic kidney disease would be the last official research project of Diana's due to the retirement of Dr. Bruce Holub. However, her passion and her interest for the project persisted well past Dr. Holub's retirement. Since that time, though, I have found out there are some Italian people who have followed this, and they have found out that if you feed deoxyglucose to animals, you can close down the cystic growth too, which is oh. quite amazing. So in other words, they have a lot in common with a cancer cell. And so what these Italian people have done is simply taken deoxyglucose and put it in these hyperproliferating cells, and they die. In her quest to make a living, Diana pushed forward numerous projects across the field of nutrition, almost all with the direct goal of improving health and nutrition. She was able to live across the northeast of North America and travel as far as Japan. After Dr. Holub retired, Diana moved into her current job as animal facility manager. At first, when reflecting on her research career, she lamented that the research projects did not produce enough publishable papers for the amount of work they required. However, despite that, she seems happy with how things ended up. 
if you could have your own research program now, what would it be in? Oh my God, <laughs> I'd have to start a list. Okay? It, would be, it would be huge. Uh, <laughs> huge? Just, Number one thing. I would be exhausted just trying to think of it. <laughs> I think probably I will have to say I would like to just stay the way I am. I enjoy working with the people and also with the animals. I have to admit, the animals are really something. I get a chance to kind of go in and, and see all the, the rockets they send off. They teach you humility, believe me. There's probably nothing they can outsmart a rat. <laughs> What are like your favorite things about Guelph? Oh, I like the music. <laughs> we have the Laura Festival. Riverfest? We used to have the Guelph Spring Festival that folded. But Guelph is a nice artsy city. It's yeah. got a lot of good artists. It's got a lot of musical opportunities, which I like. The KW Symphony is not too far away, which mm -hmm. I like. Do you play any instruments? No. I'm one of the people who is supposed to sit and listen. <laughs> okay. Because without me, a musician would not make any money. Sure. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite type of music? Well, I have to say opera. The Met has a series out at the uh, Cineplex. Once a month, I go out to the opera out and watch the movies. <laughs> so you can, you'll go to the movie here, but it'll be... Telecast from the Met. From the, from yeah. the Metropolitan Opera mm -hmm. in New York? I have to say, if, if you ask me to go and see Shakespeare's Macbeth on stage and Faraday's rendition of Macbeth at the opera, I would choose the opera. It's just so much more vibrant. More, yeah. I mean, when hell comes, it comes better when it's sung. <laughs> When I first decided to interview Diana, I just wanted to get to know her a little better. I was curious about who she was and how she came to be cleaning rat cages with me once a week. What I didn't realize was how valuable hearing her life experiences would be. As a young graduate student just entering the field of science, it's exciting and inspiring to listen to the broad range of research Diana completed throughout her life. It's humbling to see how many times Diana moved and reinvented herself to pursue her passion for research. But most important, it showed me how much of her work stems from her heart. Her firsthand experience of the cruelty and inaccessibility of nutrition in Indianapolis really impacted the course of her career. It opened her eyes to some of the flaws in the medical system and made her care about fixing them. Now when I see Diana in the hallway, spearheading a campaign for the United Way, I know she isn't doing it for some abstract concept of good. She's doing it because of her first-hand experience with the real world, 
and this is one of the many ways that she works to give back. I would like to thank Diana for taking the time to sit down and speak with me. I would also like to thank Sue Trapp, Pam Munhun, Kat Bosnick, and Naomi Shore for editing support, and Ian Lamb for production support. Frederick Geetz wrote and performed the theme music. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>